I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to read from chapter 22. Beginning at verse 15 and then through to verse 40. Matthew chapter 22 from verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, We know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said... Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The same day, some Sadducees came to him, saying, There is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. The second did the same, so also the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. Now, I'm never surprised to read that verse (laughs) at that point. In the resurrection, then, Whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment In the law is the greatest. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We thank God for his word. And uh, let me add my New Year's greetings to those that have already been expressed, no doubt, over the last week or so. I'm sure this will be a very good year for this church and... uh, I'm looking forward to sharing at least part of it with you. And of course, January is traditionally a time when we think about what's gone past and we look forward to what is to come. And perhaps some of us take stock of our lives in one way or another, either through New Year's resolutions or in other ways, trying to set our goals for the coming year, our desire to be better people and better servants of the living God. A few years ago, I was listening to a radio program, and um, a tycoon, a man who made a lot of money, was asked that question which people like that always seem to be asked, namely, to what do you attribute your great success? And I was struck by his answer. He said, well, the main thing is to keep the main thing as the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing as the main thing. Now, I've heard that, read it in different books and different places, and believe it to be true. It's a good piece of homespun wisdom. And, of course, we express that wisdom every time we use expressions like keeping first things first, or keeping our eye on the ball, or not losing the plot. All these are different idioms by which we Try and express the same idea. Know what the main thing is and hold fast to the main thing. And if you do that, then whatever it is, you are likely to be successful in what you do. Whether that's running a business, whether it's running a family, whether it's teaching in a school, whether it's being the pastor of a church, knowing what the main thing is and keeping to it with all our heart and soul. And of course, the same lesson applies to our walk with God, with our life as Christian people, and the priorities that we set for ourselves. And it's there in the Bible. You can think of a whole range of biblical texts which pretty much say this. You can think of Hebrews chapter 13, for instance. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and run with perseverance the race that is set before you, laying aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely. It's there in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's there in the Sermon on the Mount, and some of you are probably ahead of me at this point, where Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and its righteousness, and everything else will be yours as well. The main thing is to keep the main thing as the main thing. And here's a passage, Matthew chapter 22, this encounter between Jesus and these various groups in which the same theme re-emerges. Teacher, which is the first and greatest commandment? And actually, Jesus uh, does more than he's asked for. He actually gives two commandments 
which are closely related to each other. You see, just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law from God and came down bearing two tablets of stone, on which were written, on one, our duty towards God, and on the other, our duty towards each other. So Jesus now gives two commandments which summarize everything which was on those tablets of stone, and everything which is written in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures, and everything that belongs to the whole story of Israel that has gone before him. Love God, and love your neighbor. That's it. That's the main thing. That was true in the time of Jesus. It was true at the time when those words were written, because there they are in Deuteronomy chapter 6, with which we began our service today. It's true today. The most important thing for any of us is to know what it means to love God. And to apply ourselves to loving God with everything we have and everything we are. Now it's helpful to notice the context in which Jesus speaks these words. It's what you might call a a context of contest or of conflict. People are arguing with Jesus. Actually, all through his life, people argued with Jesus. Jesus never had an easy run. It was argument, argument, argument all along the way. People contesting what he said, contesting what he stood for, and disagreeing with him and trying to catch him out. In fact, when I read this passage, I have to say, it reminds me somewhat of my misspent youth, which I can just about remember. Or at least it reminds me of one hour of my misspent youth. One hour a week, that is. Because I used to misspend the hour between four o'clock and five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Something terrible when I was growing up in Longsight in Manchester. Because that was the hour when we used to have wrestling on the television. Anybody remember that? And I used to sit there glued to the television watching these people knock seven bells out of each other. And there were people that we used to love to hate. I used to love to hate Mick McManus. I confess it. And there were others that we rather liked. There was Big Daddy. There was Giant Haystacks. There was even an American ballet dancer wrestler who used to... Ricky Starr, I think was his name. I remember going to see him at, uh, at Bellevue. So engrossed was I with this whole wrestling charade. And there was a variation on the theme that I particularly liked, and it was known as tag wrestling. Does anybody remember tag wrestling? That's when you've got three teams, oh, sorry, two teams with three people on each side, and they take it in turns to get into the ring, and when one's getting tired, he tags the next person, and that person comes in, and they go on like this, seemingly forever, until one team gains the victory. And it's rather like that here, except there's Jesus on one side and there are these three groups on the other who keep taking it in turns to come and ask him questions. There's the Pharisees, verse 15. The Herodians, verse 16. And when they get tired, they hand over to the Sadducees in verse 23. And when the Sadducees have asked their questions, we're back to the Pharisees. 
And we read that this lawyer comes and asks Jesus a question. You see, this is a situation in which Jesus is being tested. Now, you may not know this. I'd be surprised if you haven't noticed it. But you, too, are being tested. This is an age in which Christian people, perhaps more than any other age that we can remember in this country, have been sifted and tested as to what they stand for. And it's there all the time. If you're a, an ardent Radio 4 listener to me, like me, then you hear it all the time. People questioning the Christian faith, raising little doubts, raising skeptical issues. And all the time, Christians being called to account. You might find that it happens in your college, your school, your place of work. Well, what you stand for is tested by others in the life that you live. Because we too live in an age of contest as to which ideas will prevail in our culture and in our society. And the most important thing, of course, is not that you should have good answers. Although I have to say, that is an important thing. Like Jesus, we need to be able to answer the questions that come in our direction. And Jesus was brilliant at it. We see it here. But more important than that is not our ability to answer the questions people ask as to demonstrate that we are a people who are consumed by love for God. You know, love is the most convincing of all arguments. Love for God. And that's what this verse is all about. Here this lawyer stands up. Now, this is not the kind of lawyer that you and I know and love in our contemporary culture. This is a lawyer in the sense of somebody who's an expert in the law of Moses. In other words, it's a theologian, somebody who studies the Bible and tries to understand it. And this lawyer comes to Jesus and says to him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, in the law, that is the Old Testament scriptures, especially the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, altogether there are 613 commandments. Did you know that? I knew it because I counted them as I was coming here this morning. <laughs> 613 commandments. And if you read them, and I'm sure you do, you would agree with me, I think, that all of them are important, but some of them are more important than others. There's a kind of hierarchy of importance. And that's what this debate is about. This lawyer is saying to Jesus, in your opinion, teacher, which is the most important of all these 600 and 13 commandments. Because if we could work that out, we'd gain a proper perspective on how to read all the others. And uh, Jesus tells him straight away what he considers to be the most important. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the most important. This is the top one. This is the main thing. And then, very closely, loving your neighbor follows from loving God. Actually, what Jesus was doing was quoting to this lawyer words that the lawyer already knew. The lawyer not only had read them, no doubt, in the scrolls that they had in their synagogues and in the temple, but uh, would know these words because they were part of the daily liturgy of a devout Jewish believer. Every morning and every evening, 
a Jewish believer would say then, and it's the same today, the words of the Shema, as it's called. The word Shema means hear, hear, O Israel. And they would repeat these words. And so, in fact, there were no words that were better known within Judaism than these words that Jesus now quotes. And he's saying, the answer's on your very lips. Do these things, and you will do the most important things of all. Love God. Love for God is the most important thing of all. It's what God asks of us above everything else. Love for God is our project. It's what we are about. It's the challenge to be better lovers. Lovers of the God who first loved us, who redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt who redeemed us from our bondage to sin and death and hell, who set us free through Jesus Christ in order that we might discover fullness of life in him. Love for this God is what we are about today. And this will be a successful year for me, for you, for this church, insofar as in this year we love God And we love each other. Love is our calling. Now that's quite simply stated. But it's not easy to live it out. Have you noticed that? And actually Jesus makes it more difficult for us. Because he quotes the whole thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And all your soul. And all your mind. That doesn't leave much out, really, does it? Everything. Love for God is not to be partial, but to be total. And none of us have arrived anywhere until we have learned to love God with everything. And that simply means that none of us has yet arrived. To love God completely is life's greatest challenge. You see, the problem is that you and I, human beings, we are complicated. Did you know that? We're strange. We're stubborn. We're difficult. We're problematic. Even in church, believe it or not, even in Lim Baptist Church, people are complicated. They are difficult. They're a mixture of all kinds of things. I know all the women here look at the men here and they think, oh, he's complicated. (laughs) But we're all complicated. Every single one of us. I think about this, by the way, when from time to time I get a chance to marry a couple. They come to church, they come down to the front, there's two of them. And uh, (laughs) Actually, if you look at them carefully and you use your imagination a bit, what you realize is that there isn't two of them. There's at least six of them that I can count. Now let's think about this. There's the he, he thinks he is. There's the he, she thinks he is. And there's the he, he actually is. 
And there's the she, she thinks she is. And the she, he thinks she is. And the she, she actually is. And all these six persons come now to be joined in what is intended to be holy matrimony. It's no wonder that marriage is difficult. You know, it, it's, it's a tragedy that people divorce, but it's a miracle that people stay married. <laughs> because as they go through life, all those six persons keep changing anyway. And marriage is a constant process of renegotiating what it is to be in a union. We are complicated. And God is saying to us complicated people, get beyond your complicated human nature and love me with all that you have in a profound simplicity or a simple profundity that will make your life one complete, integrated, wholesome, beautiful, whole. When you love me like that, you will be what you are supposed to be. And that's a challenge. Um, making things simple is the biggest challenge of life. In the academic world that I have been moving in for a few years, we have a saying, any fool can make things complicated. It takes a genius to make them simple. And here is Jesus, the genius, telling us the way it is. Learning to move beyond the complexity of our fallen, troublesome, sinful, self-centered human natures and centering ourselves in God and loving God with everything that we have. My favorite theologian is a man called Karl Barth. You may have heard this story before because it's a favorite amongst preachers and it's my favorite favorite. And uh, he was a Swiss theologian and he's very famous for having resisted Adolf Hitler. And he, uh, I've studied him quite a bit. He wrote 12 million words of theology. So he had this series of books called The Church Dogmatics in which there are 6 million words. I've not counted those, I have to say. And another series of books in which are another six million words. So we're talking about 12 million words of output. Not, there's not a million words in the Bible. In which he reflects upon every nook and cranny of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe as a Christian. And uh, at the end of the Second World War, he had the first opportunity in his life to go to the United States of America. So he got on a boat and he went to New York to give a series of lectures in the States. And when he got to New York, they had a press conference because he was very famous for his resistance to Adolf Hitler. And they asked him all kinds of questions. And at the end of the press conference, a journalist stood up and rather like this lawyer asked Karl Barth, and said, Karl Barth, Professor Barth, with all your great learning, with all that you've studied about the Christian faith, how would you reduce your theology to one sentence? Six, 12 million words into one sentence. And he thought for a moment and he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's 12 words. 
Now, if I'd said that, I think I would have looked a bit of a lemon. But it wasn't me speaking, it was Karl Barth. And behind those 12 words were those 12 million words as to what it meant. And what's lovely about that story is that it's about reducing complexity into simplicity. And that's what God asks of us. To love God with everything we have, everything we are, everything we will ever be. And to make our lives a continual forward progress in loving the God who has first loved us. That's a challenge. But it's a great challenge for life. Not just for this year, but for this life. There's one last thing to be said here about these verses, at least on this occasion. It's interesting that when Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, when he quoted the Shema that Jewish people would say twice every day, he actually misquoted it. Now, it took me a long time to notice this. But actually, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And he changes that word strength. And he puts in the word mind. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that on other occasions, it actually does use all four of those things. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Probably modifying it on the basis of what Jesus said. Why does he do this? And surely they would have noticed. Surely if they say it twice a day, they would notice that Jesus said something slightly different. Well, I suspect it's because Jesus was giving us some kind of clue as to how it is that we might learn to love God more until that day when we love God completely. He was suggesting to us, if you think about God, if you use your mind to reflect upon who God is and what God has done, perhaps as you think about God, as you contemplate God, as you reflect upon God, you might be moved to love God that bit more. That the mind is the way into the heart because it gives us reasons for loving this God with everything that we have. This is a great church. Uh, I don't know it very well, but I know enough to know that this is a really good, able, competent church. But the most important thing for this church is not that we be all those things, although that's all to be celebrated but that we be a community where God is loved. Where we manage to overcome those awkward, stubborn complexities of our human nature, which makes us want to compete with each other and argue with each other and sometimes even reject each other. We overcome all those things because there's a greater reality at work 
in every single one of us a desire to love God as God deserves. May we in this coming year make some steps forward in this great and demanding and joyful adventure. Let us pray. Lord, we have tried in our worship today to express something of the love that we feel in our hearts. And yet we're conscious as we come to you today that we're like the man in the Gospels who cried out to you, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we cry out to you, Lord, we love you but help our lack of love. Forgive us that we don't love you as you deserve. Thank you that your grace is such that none of this stops you loving us in return. But help us today by pouring your spirit into our hearts. Help us today by enriching our minds with a great vision of you such that we may move forward in the journey of love and that we might express that love not just in our praises but in our daily living and in our walk with each other as followers of Jesus Christ. Accept our love and praise today, O Lord, and lead us on in your good and kind purposes, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.